Type 1 on 1 is kindly co-sponsored by Ipsamed My Life Diabetes Care. Their My Life Ipso pump is super small, super light, it looks beautiful and focuses on keeping things simple with the help of the My Life app. Find out more on the My Life Diabetes Care website. Hi everyone and welcome to Type 1 on 1, a podcast that delves into the obscure, complex and challenging world of life with type 1 diabetes. I'm Jen Greaves and each week with the help of some brilliant guests I'll be showing that there is no normal when it comes to handling this whopper of a chronic condition because we're all pretty much figuring out the messiness of day-to-day life with diabetes as we go and most of all even though it doesn't always feel like it we are absolutely not alone. My guest today is Emma. Emma is 27 and lives in Bournemouth. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 12 and suffered an episode of hypoglycemic hemiparousis in her early 20s. Hey Emma. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yes, good, thank you. Not too bad. Great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Emma actually got in touch with me via Instagram and you put yourself forward as a guest to talk about hypoglycemic hemiparousis, which is something I'd never heard of until that point. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation today to hopefully try and spread an awareness around the subject. Hopefully. I don't think it's too well documented, so hopefully it might help a couple of people out there. Definitely. So normally I'd start with your diabetes diagnosis story, but actually... If you don't mind, today we'll go into that episode that you experienced and come back to general diabetes stuff later. So for those that are hearing the term hypoglycemic hemiparousis for the first time, hypo is low blood sugar that many people will recognize. And the word hemiparousis at its most extreme is paralysis of half of the body. And for that reason, this is often misdiagnosed as a stroke, isn't it? Yeah, um... I think in any recorded cases, it's often misinterpreted initially um, as a stroke or something similar. Right. So if you could talk us through what happened in your case. So it was about five years ago, so 2015, and I must have been 22. I was working in a bar at that time and my diabetes control was good, but not excellent. I was always taking injections, but not really probably calculating correctly what I needed. So I'd got home from a shift at the bar, had dinner, it's all quite late, probably around 11 o'clock, taking the insulin I thought I needed, taking background insulin as well, and then just gone straight to sleep. I woke up probably three or four in the morning. I thought I just needed to go to the loo. Tried to move to the side of the bed, which was just became unbelievably difficult um but I was quite sleepy and quite drowsy so I just didn't really pay too much attention and finally got to the edge of the bed swung my legs over and then just immediately collapsed on the floor I mean nothing like that's ever happened to me before so trying to work out what it was was quite difficult and it's it sounds really bizarre to say it but never for a second did I think that it was blood sugar related I never thought it was a hypo I thought maybe it was a stroke or there was something wrong with my hearing because I couldn't feel the left side of my body at all. Um, I could lift up my arm and it would just fall straight back down. I tried to pull myself up on the side of the bed and would just collapse again. At the time, I was living with my parents, but they were downstairs somewhere else in the house and um, there was nobody that I could immediately shout to. There was no sugar around me, not that I'd even thought to sort of take anything. So I managed to lean across the bed after sort of 10, 15 minutes of trying to pull myself up and caught the wire where my phone was charging and managed to bring that over. And well, the first thing I tried to do was play sounds on my phone. I thought maybe it was some the balance. I'd lost my balance because I couldn't hear properly. So I was trying to play videos and trying to hear things, which I could, but so that didn't really solve anything. And then obviously realised after doing all this that I really needed some help. So I got the phone, called my parents who came running up the stairs. My left leg, which was the side that was paralysed, was blocking the door and I couldn't move it at all. So my dad managed eventually to sort of force the door open without hurting me. 
he, he immediately realised that it was a hypo and that I needed sugar. My mum called an ambulance whilst my dad was getting me some orange juice. I drank all of that, but still wasn't really understanding what it was. I think maybe because it was so out of the ordinary and it felt like it was a stroke because you just associate that paralysis with a stroke. So I was just asking him if my face was lopsided, how I was going to go to work the next day. But after the orange juice, I quite quickly got all feeling back in my body. By the time the ambulance arrived, I was sat up in bed, just chatting away and was absolutely fine. I think probably half an hour after I first had sugar, my blood sugar, when I tested it, was around four. So I think that was probably an indicator that it was quite low because I'd eaten quite a lot after that point to bring my sugar back up. But um, yeah, the paramedics sort of did a few tests and everything was fine. And then I went back to sleep about an hour later. And that was it. That's such a bizarre resolution from something so, I imagine at the time, terrifying. Although for someone in such a severe hypo, you, you sound like you were thinking really logically and practically. Did it feel like that at the time? Yes and no. I mean, looking back on it, I don't know why I didn't immediately think it was a hypo. There was nothing. I didn't try and get any sugar myself. That just didn't occur to me. So in that side of things, I think I wasn't thinking clearly. But in another respect, I was just trying to get myself up, trying to get myself out of the situation. Um, I didn't pass out at all. I didn't lose consciousness. So yeah, it was, it was hard to look back and say which which way it was really, if I was understanding or not. But I think that was part of the confusing thing of having hypos, isn't it? You're never like fully cognitive as like you normally would be, but there's something there keeping you going, making sure that you stay safe. Yeah, it's a survival instinct, isn't it? I think. Yeah, you say. I don't know why I didn't think it was a hypo, but this sounds so far removed from the experience of a hypo, of every hypo that I've certainly had. I don't know how I would feel in that situation, but I think my inkling would be that I would not immediately associate it either. No, I think in that moment it felt like, oh my God, this is another thing on top of diabetes. It didn't, the two didn't connect. I mean, anyone with type 1 diabetes has seen the the A4 sheet with all the different symptoms and how you know if you're having a hypo and that's quite well ingrained into all of us I think and we all have individual sort of symptoms that we pick up on I don't know if it was the panic in the moment that I didn't have time to sit back and think could this be something else or it was just the fact that I'd never never heard of it and never had anyone have any sort of similar experience you hear of people obviously becoming unconscious I had it once when I was a lot younger that um, I became unconscious when I was asleep and I needed medical attention then but um, not to the degree that I woke up and I was sort of paralyzed it's very very bizarre. Did you have hyper awareness at this time at all? Yeah um, I've been really always been really fortunate by the time I get down to sort of five or four in terms of blood sugar I'm always quite aware get very shaky I get quite anxious at that time so that always I always know that something's happening if that feeling starts coming on so yeah it was a very strange one I was I think all I could probably put it down to is that I was mismanaging my insulin I think my blood sugar probably dropped so quickly whilst I was asleep that my body didn't have time to wake me up like it normally would because I've suffered with hypos in the night before and always luckily woken up and dealt with it but I think possibly just too much insulin didn't give me that opportunity everything probably happened too quickly how was this followed up the next day or in the days and weeks after how did you feel as well the next day were you exhausted (laughs) I was knackered luckily I had the day off work I was going to be going to see some friends in Birmingham which is a really weird thing because I had to try and explain what had happened to me and I couldn't really understand what had happened to myself I mean I was 
physically I knew what had happened, but I didn't know why. And mentally, I don't think I'd even begun to try and process it. So to explain that to people who don't understand type 1 diabetes all that well felt quite tricky in itself. My mum contacted my consultant um, and we went to see them a couple of weeks later. They gave me a Dexcom. I think it's quite an early sort of version of it. And I wore that for a week just to check what was happening with my sugars overnight. But during that appointment and this follow-up appointment, nobody ever mentioned the hypoglycemic hemiparesis. It wasn't discussed. Nobody ever gave me a name. It was just sort of questioned as this, oh, it's a bit bizarre. It's a bit strange that this has happened. We'll run some tests. We'll give you the Dexcom, see if it happens again. It didn't. And so I was kind of sent, sent on my way to deal with it. And it was quite strange to just carry on once you've had that when you're asleep because for a while I woke I would go to sleep or wake up in the night and you panic because I didn't have a CGM or anything at the time so it would obviously involve like a physical blood test each time and you never quite know where you are with that or if you're going to go back to sleep and it's going to change again so it felt I think I felt slightly let down at that point that nobody could give me a diagnosis or really help me with how to prevent it other than going to sleep with a slightly higher blood sugar which is fine to do but we obviously don't want to do that all the time for health reasons yeah of course how did you then I guess move forward was it a case of time goes on you know without these answers and and feeling this sense of being let down slightly without the answers from the doctors I turned to google and I found a couple of different studies some dated back to like the 1980s. They gave a little bit of background of some recorded cases, but nothing really that concrete. I read there was one report that gave a figure of about 200 cases throughout the world that had been recorded. So it's hard to know whether these things just aren't being picked up or if there's just a failure to document them, if they're not sort of recorded properly, if, they, if it's misinterpreted as a stroke does it then not become a part of the other statistics which it should be so from that I couldn't really take too much I often over the next couple of years always did a little bit of research see if there was anything new I would bring it up at consultant appointments but it was always sort of glazed over and never really dug into that deeply until I went to a Bertie course in 2018 which I think is quite similar to the Daphne course. And we had a group of five or six of us that were doing one Monday each week for a month, just learning to carb count again and just re-educating ourselves. And over that process, the nurses that we were working with would write down any questions that we had to be brought up on the last week with the consultant at the hospital. So I put forward this story that I'd had which I always just called that thing that happened to me when I was paralyzed when I was asleep because I never really I never had a name for it so it always felt a bit strange to bring it up and what to call it so they wrote they wrote that down remember the question and when the consultant came in at the last week she, the nurse read the question out and the consultant immediately turned around and said well that wouldn't happen that's not that's just impossible that that couldn't happen to anyone unless they were in their 80s been type 1 for years and years had problems with the arteries in their neck um it's just impossible it couldn't happen so <laughs> at that point I'm sat in the room thinking oh I need to say something now I need need to ask more questions because it did happen so I put my hand up and she sort of continued in the same vein that it just couldn't have really happened, but sent an email whilst we were all chatting to some colleagues. And um, about 10 minutes later, she came back and apologised and corrected herself and said, I'm so sorry, there are recorded cases. It's not well documented at all. There's one or two that my colleagues know of. It's something really under-researched, but it has happened. So I think that was must have been three or four years later after it happened that I finally got that recognition and that's when she gave me the term um, transient hypoglycemic hemiparesis which it felt good to finally have a name for it and that meant that I could do a bit more 
research and from all all the googling and all the researching that I've done it doesn't seem to be something that appears again very often most people suffer it as a one-off kind of event which is quite good it's quite it's nice to know before you go into bed that it's very unlikely that it would happen again but um yeah so it took a few years but finally finally got there and did you feel a sense of relief or validation or was it helpful having that term for it that you could categorize it in that way yeah definitely because for so long like I said I've just been saying to anybody that would listen to me well this thing this thing happened to me and I was low and yeah it was like a stroke but it wasn't a stroke because I'm fine now and I was fine after I, I had some sugar and resolved the hypo and then I was back to normal but to actually have a name gave me a point to start research looking at it and to also it made conversations easier because I felt like it was recognized and it wasn't something that was just a strange symptom of diabetes that sometimes people just say oh well that's just related to that condition which obviously it is but it's an actual term in itself if that does that make sense like it's it's not it doesn't happen to everybody and it's something that should be looked at individually not just as a hypo symptom if that makes sense yeah so at the point of this episode, you'd been living with type 1 diabetes for around 10 years or so, and you said things like insulin mismanagement. What did your yeah. day-to-day life with diabetes look like at this point? How were you kind of dealing with it? When that happened, I was very much in the frame of mind that diabetes didn't rule my life, and I always continued to take insulin. I never stopped doing that because I knew I needed it to keep me alive but I didn't I don't think I truly understood what I needed to do I wasn't educated enough and it felt really difficult it felt too much to sort of take on so I just carried on with life and did everything that I wanted to do whilst taking insulin but not paying too close attention to what my blood sugar would be after or I wasn't carb counting to make sure that I came back down to a safe level after I'd eaten. It was those types of things that led to the episode of hemiparesis that I had because I would dial up the insulin and I would take it, but often I wouldn't even look at the pen. I would just think, mm, I feel I feel like I'm about 12 and if I wind it up this much, then that'll probably be enough insulin to cover that and then I'll just carry on with what I'm doing and get on with life. So it was... It was always there, but it was never at the forefront of what I was doing. It was never the main thing that I thought about. Had you felt like that since your time of diagnosis, age 12, or was it something that had gradually sort of evolved over through your teenage years? So I think, unfortunately, it was something that was always there. My, my diagnosis, I was quite lucky. The first time that I went, my mum took me to the doctors. The first time I went, they diagnosed me straight straight away took me to hospital I spent a week in hospital I had good education with it and then sent home to deal with it but I think at that point I I shut off it it felt at 12 years old it felt too much I didn't I couldn't process it I don't think so I just always carried on with okay I need insulin to keep me alive and that's what I'm going to do but it's not having any other focus in my life it's not taking any of my time up that it doesn't have to like the the bare minimum to get by to keep functioning that's how I dealt with it and it it, I think it's a really difficult thing to try and to try and deal with at that age because I was just gone to secondary school and the last thing that you want when you're in secondary school is to be different at all and I think this was I was in year seven and it just made me feel immediately that I was different and that nobody quite understood what I was going through there was no one to really talk to or connect with about it so I thought if I shut it away as best I could then I could carry on being as normal as I could in other respects with my friends because it's not (laughs) as much as sometimes people can be interested 
when you're a teenager, people really go, you're not that interested in the blood tests and the injections. And I think I just didn't want it to steal focus from what I was doing. And I didn't want anybody to see me as being different. So I just pushed it down and pushed it down until I wasn't really dealing with it at all. And I never really accepted it because I don't I don't think I gave myself that opportunity. I just said, I can't mentally, I can't process this. It's too much for me. I don't want to be different. And then carried on. Looking back, it's really bizarre to think that I would go whole days where I would test my blood sugars once, maybe. My my mum would send me off to school and say, okay, you need to do the one mid-morning and then you need to do lunchtime one and then mid-afternoon. And I just didn't care. I really, really did not want to do it. The thought of getting the testing kit out in front of everybody just always felt too much because I didn't want that attention I never wanted somebody to ask me what it was because I hadn't dealt with it so how could I answer any questions that anybody had for me I think it just became something that was there it was present but never never fully I was never engaged with it yeah so many people I've spoken to particularly who are diagnosed at this kind of age have experienced the same myself included what I'm hearing is yours maybe have been a bit more conscious choice for you. But for me, I also don't think that I understood that I needed to do more or the sort of long-termness, the permanence of it. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> I think that's that's something that when I was diagnosed, I really struggled with because immediately I was told all of these awful things that can happen to you all these long-term effects that can impact your life like with your sight all of those sorts of things and a doctor he was a male doctor probably in his 50s told me all of this the day after I was diagnosed I was in the hospital and it was just the scariest thing I think that's ever happened to me yeah there was no comfort in it and there was nobody to help me mentally process what that meant for me it was it's very I find it very much there's the day-to-day control and then the long-term impact of it that I find those things very different to deal with and at that point it felt like I had to take everything on in that one moment my life can just change completely I walked into the hospital as one person and I came out as somebody completely different my life was just changed in so many ways I mean taking on the injections and all of those kind of things is a lot in itself. But I think you're sort of faced with your own mortality in a way when you're that young. It's quite hard to process because the way that you have to look after yourself now with the condition is you have to physically keep yourself alive. We're, We're working to reproduce what an organ does and it's it's mad when you think of it in that sense it's really really difficult to try and comprehend and when I was 12 years old I just didn't I didn't get it and I it was too much that conversation that I had with the doctor just scared me into just being silent about it I think I didn't want to think about it and I couldn't think about it because it was all too upsetting yeah and I at that time, I had a couple of relatives who um, one had type 1 diabetes and one had type 2. And within the space of a year, they both suffered quite horrible um, long-term symptoms of it, I think. And that was really scary to deal with because you were, I was actually seeing like firsthand how it could impact you. And I think I would have benefited from some mental assistance at that point some therapy someone to talk to someone to explain it to me because I mean all the people in my life care so much and they've done so much for me but if you don't have that first-hand experience it's hard to get I find it quite hard to get into that proper conversation because I feel like they don't they don't get it in the same way this is huge huge stuff for a 12 year old to be dealing with and processing and that interaction you had on that second day 
didn't open up any kind of dialogue or space for you to have those conversations by the sounds of it no it was it was very much just closed off it was that I was told those things and then then we moved on and I had a consultant just after that which was I was still in the pediatric center obviously because I was quite young but I was sat in this room where the chairs were all too small and there's all these toys and it just felt like a really odd environment and I remember the doctor sitting opposite me with his chin on his knees and I just felt like this is bizarre how is this my life from two weeks ago this makes no sense (laughs) what am I doing here yeah totally that is it's not fit there's no space here to have a proper conversation (laughs) or it it doesn't even sound real I always found it really strange because it was always such obviously serious topics that the doctors are trying to convey to you why you need to do these things why you need to test why you need to carb count but surrounded by this room that is just like a child's bedroom it was just very disorientating and very confusing what was actually going on (laughs) was carb counting explained to you at the point of diagnosis because it was never explained to me for I don't think ever until I started to engage of my own accord some 10 odd years later or whatever to the point that I've never been on a carb counting course I don't remember it being explicitly told to me when I was diagnosed but I was I was aware of it not long after and I really 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 did not want to do it I didn't have a blood test reader that would allow me to input the carbs at that point so it was all very difficult to even try to calculate anything so for the first four or five years I really did not engage with that at all um the doctors then tried to get me to go on I think I did a one-day course and I was very lucky to have been given the chance to go on the course but I did not want to do it there was nothing that anybody could say to me at that point that would make me engage with it it was only like you say when I actually started looking into it of my own account when I decided that I wanted to be better and I wanted to have more control and that obviously meant an education that I looked into the Bercy course because for years I've been have you had that the blue book the blue carb counting book that everybody seems to have I think I was given one every year at a doctor's appointment and I would look at it and go yep I see what I see what that's for but I, I, I'm not using it and I must have about 10 of them at home I just I don't think I was ever really given one. I don't think this conversation ever happened. Isn't that mad? Aww. But my care moved around a lot. So I feel like maybe I just slipped through some quite important cracks. <laughs> yeah, send me one if you've got 10. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I've got so many. <laughs> no, I went and found the Bournemouth course that's online. Yeah. That's the one I took. And that, that was a game changer completely. What was the catalyst for your change where did that come from do you know I'd like to say that it was a moment of sort of revelation but it was a very slow lean into things I started following quite a lot of people on Instagram and I found initially that it was really good but then that became too much and a bit too intense because I was comparing myself to all these different people that were doing amazingly a lot of Instagrammers in America that had huge platforms and all this different tech that I didn't even understand I didn't have any CGM I'd never considered using one at this point um so that felt really intimidating how old were you at this time probably about 25 I think so probably about two years ago yeah so this is all fairly recent for you yeah it's it's been a lot of change in the last two years and I, I couldn't really imagine controlling type 1 diabetes how I did even just two years ago I feel like my education has been really good and I've come a long way with it but it also was quite a lot to take on just even in terms of social media it's really amazing how much it connects you because I don't know if you had a similar experience but when I was growing up I didn't know anyone with type 1 diabetes I didn't know anyone at school I didn't know anyone at university I've never worked anywhere where anyone else had it So it's always felt like it was my condition and it was my thing to deal with, so to speak. I was the expert on it because nobody else had it, but I wasn't really an expert because I wasn't doing it properly. So when I started to get into social media 
um, mainly on Instagram with all these different bloggers, I found it too much and I decided to make a separate Instagram account. So I have two now where one, I don't have any followers on it and it's just private and I follow anyone that I'm interested with, with type one diabetes, and then I can flip between the two. So if I, if I want to look at something, I want to research something, I want to see how somebody's getting on with a certain pump or CGM, I can flip over to that account and then it doesn't take up too much space in my normal feed because mentally that became too much for me to see it on a daily basis to like a constant bombardment of people who are doing really, really well. And it's amazing that they are, but if when you're trying to turn the corner on something, it felt quite difficult to see that all the time because it felt like I was failing in some respects. Yeah, I think that's such a helpful point to make about almost compartmentalizing or separating the days when you feel like you've got the headspace to engage with all of this information and all of these pieces of content and those that you don't. And I think now the online communities are the first port of call for people who want to start connecting because I think most people do have the experience where they don't really know anyone else in real life. I wish I'd had that when I was younger. And we hear all the time how amazing the online community is and I fervently believe that. But thank you for saying that basically because I think that's a lot of people's apprehension about entering the diabetes online world. Yeah, I think it can feel really in not intimidating in a way that I mean, I've never experienced anybody make me feel anything but welcome. But it's a lot to dive in when you don't, know anyone or you don't have any connections at that point it can feel quite quite scary I think because it just opens up a whole new world and especially with I mean how amazing technology is now um all the different types of even just the pens that you can have the pumps the cgms the just everything I think once you if you've gone from nothing to suddenly seeing everything it's intense and you feel like well do I need that why have I not got that should I be using this would would I be better if I have that why don't I have that and it's really it can just become so consuming in seeing I mean most people that I follow do post like a good balance between good blood sugars and bad but sometimes if you're if I just finished work got home blood sugars were terrible I'm trying to figure out what to dinner have for dinner what correction dose to take and I think oh just have a look on Instagram and then I see 10 pictures of people with perfect flat lined 100% in target it's like why have I bothered everyone else can do it and I can't do it um so it it helped me to put it into a separate account where I can just go there when I need to when I want to find something or I want a bit of comfort from people that are dealing with the same thing I'm so happy to say that Dexcom UK and Ireland is the co-sponsor of Type 1 on 1. The Dexcom G6 CGM system lets you see what your blood glucose is up to with just a quick glance at your compatible smartphone. With predictive hypo alert, customizable alerts and a glucose reading up to every five minutes, use Dexcom to help monitor your blood glucose levels while you crack on with life. The Dexcom G6 starter kit is available for £159. Find out more at Dexcom.com. After you went online and found it quite overwhelming, what? where did you go next? The first thing that I wanted to do was get involved with a CGM monitor. That was the first thing that I wanted. And the initial obstacle was NHS based. And I felt I couldn't quite, I couldn't get on the list. I couldn't meet the criteria. It was, I think it was April last year when things changed and it became more widely available. So it was probably four or five months before that change happened that I was starting to ask the questions and I was basically told no um I didn't meet things and they would review it later down the line are you talking about a libre here in terms of NHS availability yeah sorry um the CGM yeah so I went to do it myself and I self-funded the Dexcom for three months and it was just the most amazing thing but also terrifying because I've never had that much information 
I was at the point where with blood tests, I was probably doing 10 to 20 blood tests a day to try and make sure that I was within range all the time. But without that continuity that the data from a Dexcom gives you, I did I didn't feel like I was making any progress. But as soon as I got that, it was amazing. But information overload, it was just all of this stuff that I'd never noticed before because you can't see that from blood tests when you creep slightly higher if you have something slightly different to eat or that extra walk that you've done before work so that felt great but intense and um, I then went traveling to Australia for six weeks so I took the Dexcom with me kind of forgot about everything else and came back in May when these changes had happened in the NHS and I went to my consultant's appointment and my A1C had dropped quite a lot. She was really pleased and she asked how I'd done it. I said I'd been using the Dexcom and she approved me for the Libre, which was just felt amazing. It felt that the hard work that I'd put in in terms of like financially funding something towards my diabetes, which I didn't think would ever be possible with how I was feeling 10 years ago with it. Um, but that had paid off to the point that I was now going to get the help that I needed and this was going to be funded for me. And it would, it's changed my life completely having the access to it. It's the control that I have now I never would have had before. Going back to the hemiparousis, now I can sleep and see that I'm not going to dip too low or I can wake up in the morning and just check that everything was fine. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's incredible that you kind of made that happen for yourself. The strength there and the work you've done, you know, to see that then pay off finance for people is such a tangible way of, it's such a tangible barrier. Yeah, it was so difficult. I found it so difficult initially because because I was self-funding, I also didn't get any support with that. There was nobody talked me through how to use this data or nobody talked me through even the setup of it. So I set my targets quite tight. So suddenly I've got this Dexcom alarm going off like every five minutes, which was just so annoying in those moments where you just want to relax and watch TV and then it's going off. And it was a really hard thing to adjust to this new technology that was helping me and that I wanted but I had it it was a new way of accepting diabetes in my life that this was now present and it was going to help me but I had to learn to be okay with the way that it operated um I remember when I had the appointment with my consultant and she gave me the green light for the Libre she told me my A1C and it had never been that low ever in my life. And I'd, it was one of the, I'd never thought that I would get to that point. And I remember sitting in my car on my own after the appointment and I just sobbed I, because in a good way, in a really happy way, because like you say, all that hard work that nobody sees, the background stuff, the things you do before bed, before you wake up, all of those really intense things that are so, so hard sometimes paid off. And it was like that moment of recognition from a consultant who up until that point, I'd been terrified of those appointments. And it finally felt like I met, I met the criteria in a way. And I was, and the hard work had, had got me there that I'd done myself. I'd educated myself. I'd paid for it. And it was just the best feeling. I think I'm just so happy to get to that point. That's so amazing to hear. What are your interactions like in clinic or how have they evolved as your perspective has changed? And as you say, you've consciously made more room for dealing with your diabetes. Initially, in so from probably about 12 to probably up until about when I was 20, I hated them with a passion. I could not bear anything worse than going to those appointments. My parents used to get so frustrated with me because... I would hide the letters, I would tear them up, I would put them in the bin, we would be continually missing appointments because I just did not want to go. It it never felt like I was a part of the conversation or part of the dialogue in the appointment. It was information that was 
sort of just given to me and it was I think it's there's a, a number of reasons I wasn't educated enough in type 1 diabetes to engage in it the second is that I didn't want to engage in it at all and it just felt like a lot of adults telling me all of these things that I needed to do otherwise you're going to have all of these horrible complications which it just it didn't work that approach didn't work for me I did I needed time and I needed somebody to walk me through it a bit slower and help me understand. I mean, it's a bit different for girls than it is with boys, but nobody even told me how hormones can affect your blood sugar. Oh, no. And I've only learned that in like the last three or four years. And it's just mad. As a teenager, you just don't know these things. It just adds layer on layer of these things that you don't understand. And I think going to appointments I just felt like I was failing I constantly felt like I wasn't meeting the targets I wasn't in range I'd never done enough blood tests I would I don't know if you remember those um the actual books that we used to have where you had to write down what your blood sugar was um in the morning at lunchtime evening bedtime yeah I would make that up every time I would get like six different pens. So it wasn't obvious that I'd made it up, switch between the different colors and just fill in this book of just utter nonsense because it just felt like I was going to go there and be told off. I felt like I was going to get in trouble. It it didn't feel like it was for my benefit. I don't think. Was your diary completely covered in blood spots? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I've had those for effect just to make it look like I really have. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> that's terrible. Don't listen to this, anyone that's trying to get away. <laughs> so now it feels like I've got a different consultant who I really get on with. So I don't know if it's her or if it's my mindset. I think it probably is my mindset that's changed because I go there with questions of my own, things that I've looked into or I might be considering I go to them for the answers instead of feeling like I'm just going to go and be told off and this is going to be an hour of my life where I'm just made to feel really rubbish now if if I've got a problem I think I've got to the point where I accept that it's not always going to be perfect and if I need some guidance then those are the people they're the expert then they'll help me and it's a it's a balanced conversation we're in it together if that makes sense it's not one-sided I'm it's for me it's for my benefit and I I love going to them now it's really sad I get so excited when I can go because there's I think with type 1 diabetes because it's a chronic condition and it's the longevity of the condition there's very little markers for when you're doing well it just feels very continuous and you just sometimes it can feel like it'll go on forever and you can have a really good day but I've got to wake up and do it all again tomorrow whereas I kind of I've tried to use the appointments as a little bit of a milestone to if I've kept my A1C down or if I've got answers to a certain question or if I'm thinking about using a different kind of tech it gives me sort of a mark along along the road if that makes sense it gives me something to sort of orientate my goals towards and keep myself going because otherwise it can just feel like a road that stretches out forever and you just have to keep going but I think the main thing I think is it feels like a balanced conversation like I'm a part of it as well before I didn't feel like I was a part of it I felt it was just to tell me I wasn't doing well which was probably my own mindset and the doctors had when <laughs> that's not their job to just tell me off but I never felt any different as a as a kid so it's, it's I'm glad that I finally got there it's been a long road <laughs> 16 years and we finally got to the place where I'm okay going to them instead of hiding the letters yeah going back to the pill briefly I now knowing what I know can absolutely bookend a period of about six years where I felt moderately crap moderately to largely crap with being on a certain pill which obviously just was not right for my body and therefore was not right for my diabetes and affected every area of my life and often when I talk about the sort of university years where my self-worth was really lacking 
it's all linked. It's all completely inextricably joined up. But I just had no awareness at the time. I don't think I even knew at that time that insulin was a hormone, you know, (laughs) just all these things where it's like, oh, I feel quite sad about that. I feel sad for her who didn't know. Yeah, I feel that all the time. I think that's where that's where I get quite sad and quite upset is when I look back at the things that I've dealt with and missed opportunities for information that I needed to make my life easier. I think looking back on those things, it's really it's really tough to see how young you were, I think, sometimes. And especially with like, having periods or with the pill, it's just I don't understand why no one ever explained it because it's so helpful now. I mean it just it's some like you say it's a hormone obviously they're going to be linked but if you don't put two and two together yourself somebody needs to explain it so that you can counteract something that's going to affect you month to month we touched briefly there on traveling to australia and this was at a time when you were becoming more engaged with your type 1 how did you approach traveling with type 1 it was scary it in terms of the main issues that I was looking at was how much of my insulin did I need to take with me and how did I keep that cold for the duration of the trip? What was I going to do in terms of hypo treatment, the sugar that I needed to take with me, and then time zones, factoring in time zones when you're taking your basal insulin at 10 o'clock at night was just so confusing because you'd be I was on a flight a 13-hour flight and I'm trying to work out well I don't know what time it is in England what time is it in Singapore when I land it but there's really helpful websites um my consultants were quite helpful they gave me lots of information where you can work out and correct how much you need to take at different times which was good but I was with family for four weeks of the trip and then I had a week on my own in Sydney which was amazing but also quite scary because I'm in a country on the other side of the world I don't know anybody in the city and having suffered something like hemiparesis if I ran into trouble during the night I just had to be very vigilant in what I was doing I had to be very careful with my insulin and how much I was doing every day and just be take account of so many different things so that I could go to sleep and know that I was safe that was a scary thing to do but it felt really great once I'd done it and um, on the last day of my trip in Sydney I climbed the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I had my Dexcom on at the time but I wasn't allowed to take my phone to the actual climb so I had to have a bit of blind faith that I was going on a walk which was scary quite physically challenging and it was going to be for four hours and I couldn't check my sugars at all. So I downed two or three bottles of orange juice before I left and then just went. And standing at the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge was just the most amazing thing. I think that was a bit of a turning point for me as well because it felt like I can do these things. I can do the things that I want to do. and As long as I'm careful, type 1 diabetes isn't going to stop me doing that because I think just going back to what we were saying before when I was younger I really felt like I wasn't good enough because there's so many amazing examples of people like celebrities or sports people that have type 1 diabetes and do all these incredible things but sometimes it feels like you can't quite achieve those things because a you might not want to do those things and b you're just struggling to get through that day so to actually do something like the bridge climb just felt like, yes, I've done this and I can do the things that I want to do. Yeah, that was your Olympic race. That was my, yeah, that was my, um, what's his name? Is it Steve Redgrave? That was my, yeah. my rowing, yeah. <laughs> I think he was the only person I knew of in the world that had... <laughs> diabetes throughout my primary school I think yeah and you know I found that really tough when I was growing up because I didn't want to be a rower and I wasn't male and I wasn't of his age so he was very inspirational I would never say anything against that but I didn't have any I don't know about you but I didn't have any examples of somebody just leading a normal life or doing something in a field that I was interested in it was sort of 
these one or two people that were outstanding with type 1 diabetes and the rest of the people were unknown. And that felt really, really strange for a long time that it was if I'd see family at a barbecue or something and they would end up talking about type 1 diabetes and go, oh, but that's Steve. Steve Redgrave's got that. Yeah, yeah, he is the only other person apart from me that's got that. (laughs) I think it was the same for me. That's kind of where I started writing because I was like, I'm 23 or 24 and I have just started my career and I'm living in a new city. I've got all these new friends. We're going out loads. I'm drinking a fair bit. And like, I feel like the world has just opened up to me because I am starting to get a grip on my type one. I'm reading more about the condition, which I've never done before, but I don't want to sit down and wrap myself in cotton wool and and never do life you know yeah I think that's a really tough thing because when I started getting more involved with my own diabetes and different people on social media I found that it's a really weird balance because I felt like the to the degree that I was re-educating myself almost became scary again hypos became scarier and taking insulin to make sure that it was the right amount became scarier and it was a really weird transition I think I went through a sort of a second acceptance of that and came out the other side like you're saying you have and I felt it's not going to stop me but I need to do x y and z yeah it's almost like once you start scratching this at the surface it's just whoa I didn't know what I didn't know and now I know it and that's slightly terrifying so terrifying and that's I've the other week I did a little bit of an experiment because with the Libre because I've got all that information I can check it all the time I was running out of a prescription and I only had one left and I felt really, really panicked. I felt really worried that I didn't have one. And then I sat down and thought about it and came to the conclusion that, okay, I can do blood tests like I've done for the last 15 years of my life and I will probably get through a couple of days. And it was actually really nice to come away from that technology just for a few days to prove that I could still do it, that I still had that hypo-awareness and that I was still in control as much as I had been before but the the Libre just helped me. So you're on the Libre now which is funded by the NHS. Are you still on injections at this point? I am still on injections and I think I probably will be for a little bit longer. I have always felt very very intimidated by a pump. I find the idea of having it physically on me really intimidating. I previously sort of a couple of years ago it was far too much when I wasn't really accepting diabetes in itself anyway that felt like a huge huge leap and um, for some people it's amazing and the results are brilliant and I hope that maybe one day I'll get to that point where I feel comfortable enough to do that but I think it's also quite important just to remember that you can still do it on injections you can still get the results that you want and if you feel comfortable doing it that way which is how I feel I've I trust it. I know that way of dealing with diabetes. It's how I've done it for 16 years. And to mix it up with a pump maybe will be good for me at some point. But also it's it's a big change. It's a scary thing to consider because I feel like you have to relearn how you operate maybe with the injections. I'm very used to the basal injection. And then I use two different fast acting insulins throughout the day. So I've, I don't know if it would take away some of my options. I like being able to mix and match what I'm doing. That's interesting. Is that you use Fiasp and Nova Rapid? Yeah. So I was really struggling with um, blood sugar spikes in the morning and it would get to the point where I wasn't really eating breakfast until midday because I just couldn't get it down to a level that I was happy with to then eat my breakfast. So I did some research and I found that Fiasp was meant to be a lot quicker. So I spoke to the doctors and now I use both. So for breakfast, I'll use Fiasp or if I'm eating something that's going to have quite a quick release of carbs, I'll use Fiasp. If it's something that's going to take a little bit longer to release, then I'll go back to Novo Rapid or just I find it really because it does work a lot quicker for me within sort of five minutes. I can see my blood sugar dropping after I've taken Fiasp. It's, It's a really handy way of dealing with different days if I was going to go out and do exercise then I know that I could take Fiasp and within two hours that will have stopped working in my system and then I'm a bit freer to go for a run or whatever I'm going to do whereas with Nova Rapid you've got that four hour sort of period haven't you that you need to contemplate 
so yeah it's not a hard and fast rule I'll mix them up as I need to but I quite like having that freedom I don't know if a pump would maybe take that away from me that's amazing that flexibility it's about it then making your life easier and diabetes more manageable and that gives you those options I've not heard anyone using the two the best thing is with pizza because you can take you can (gasps) take (laughs) this is a revelation (laughs) I take the fias for the initial food and then the nova rapid can kick in a little bit later and oh it's just the best thing it makes like eating pizza again without worrying it's just amazing Wow. Yeah, I think you're so right. A lot of people see the pump as this sort of upgrade. And while that may be the case for some people, it's not the case for everyone. I felt like I was newly diagnosed all over again. And it took me a long time to get to grips with the pump to the point that I considered giving it back. Did you? I know I'm truly privileged to have access to the pump, but it was around Christmas time. So my food was off. There's a lot of high fat foods going on, a lot of high carb, high fat combo foods. I just struggled for over a month. I felt like anything I was taking on would just send my blood sugars skyrocketing. And I think I also expected it to suddenly reduce my insulin requirements quite a lot. And that didn't happen for me. And I'd seen online, like, you know, some people reducing their insulin by half and mine, it reduced a little bit, but, but not very much. And I've said before, I would have to really think and consider if I had the option of having the CGM or an insulin pump and I could only have one, I would have to do a bit more thinking, but I would instinctively be inclined, I think, to take the CGM. Yeah, I've not had a pump, so I can't comment, but I think that has been, I don't know about you, but life-changing in the way that you can control things. It's just... If, I also feel like I started to be able to control it when technology caught up with me. If that, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I was able to deal with diabetes, but to a degree. But once I finally had the technology that I needed, I could take it and I could run and I could do what I needed to do. But without that, the benefit of the different technologies, I couldn't get there with just a blood test. Yeah, I need I needed the extra bits. Is there any advice or anything that you've personally kind of come to in your head that's been helpful to come back to because it is an ongoing process that you would want to pass on to other people? I think the mo- the most important thing I found is that you you just you keep learning. There's so many different things that affect you personally with diabetes like whether it's your mental health or your the way you physically take care of your type 1 diabetes there's so many different things that factor into that at different stages of your life I'm in a very privileged position now where a lot of the time that I have is my own and I can concentrate on diabetes but in the future that might not be the case and I think it's just an an ever-changing condition It, it never stays the same I mean, day-to-day control never stays the same, but the way that it impacts your life never stays the same. I'm quite happy with how things are now, but if I look back to how they were previously, I was really not happy about it. And I think if if I could give advice to myself at 12, it would just to deal with it as best that you can. There's there's so many people that I'm so lucky have tried to help me and help me move forward with the way that I've controlled it and my acceptance of the condition, but I couldn't do it until I was ready. I think in one of your previous podcasts, you spoke to somebody and they said that their son often screamed at them that they didn't understand because they didn't have the condition. And that's how I felt for a really, really long time. I think I was quite angry that nobody understood it and all these different people were trying to tell me how to do something that they didn't have and it's it's only with time that I can come to terms with the the fact that I've got the condition and also that people are trying to help me even though they don't have it it's a very hard thing to deal with when you enter different places in your life as well like going into the workplace after university you're suddenly faced with a huge amount of people that don't know 
really all that much about type 1 diabetes. They may have heard of type 2, they may have seen different things here and there, but suddenly being faced with all these questions of, can you eat this? Can you do that? Can you, should you be doing that? It's really difficult and it's it's hard to put into, to articulate really how to deal with the condition because it's so individual, but I think it's really important that people go at their own pace, that you deal with it when you're ready. There's nothing that anybody could have done to make me deal with it any quicker. I had to get there on my own. And I'm in a good position now with my control because I was allowed that time to get there. You, there was no doctor. There was nobody that could force me. And you could tell me the worst thing in the world was going to happen to me. But until I got to that place where I felt like I had the mental space to deal with it, that I was ready to take this challenge on because the day that you're diagnosed, I doubt for very many people is the day that you, you get a good handle on things because it's you just have to educate yourself in so many different things that people don't often realise. It's like you say, it's just ever changing and it's not something that's easy to describe to anyone else that isn't a type 1 diabetic because there's just so much. <laughs> yeah, totally. Have you met anyone else who's experienced hypoglycemic hemiparesis? I haven't. I would love to. I would love to meet anyone that's had a similar experience and find out how they got into that position or how they dealt with it, if they've had a name for it. I, I wonder if there's many people out there that still don't have the name because that's the that's the situation I was in for a very long time if you had the chance to have never lived with type 1 diabetes would you take it all away <laughs> you know I've thought about this question so many times um when I've heard it in other episodes of your podcast I've thought oh, my immediate answer is to say get rid of it I don't want it I don't to live a life without it but it has given me so much understanding of other conditions. And I don't mean that in the sense that I understand how they work or the things that people have to do to deal with them, but it does give you a level of sort of appreciation for the hard work that other people are doing as well. And I there are times that I hate it, but it's also mine. It's my diabetes and it's my journey. And I don't think I would be the person that I am if I hadn't <clears throat> have gone on this journey. So I can't believe I'd say it, but I actually don't think I would give it up because it's it's part of me now, I think, with intertwined to a point where I'm not sure where the diabetes ends and where I start. It's, it's something that will always be a part of me, I think. Yeah, I find it quite conflicting, but I find this whole condition quite conflicting, going from yeah, it's okay. And today was all right. And then the next day just being sidelined by it or going through a really traumatic nighttime hypo. And then like your experience, by the time the paramedics are there, you're sat up and it's all over, you know, that kind of conflict. I just think it permeates loads and loads of areas of living with this condition. It, yeah. It affects so many, so, so many different areas of your life. And especially with hypos it's because the resolution of a hypo is something quite pleasant it's sugar it's it's not, nothing too horrible i find that people often don't have an understanding of how serious it can be which is fine we can help them understand it's that nobody knows everything from the outset but it's a really weird thing to think that my life in this moment could be in serious danger if my blood sugar drops but I'll have some orange juice and then I'll be fine. And then after that, I just carry on with my day and I get on and I go to work and I do all these different things. But in that moment, if I didn't treat that hypo, it would be really, really dangerous. And it's yeah. li living with that sort of risk every day. It, it never leaves your mind completely, I don't think. that It's always hovering in the background. There's so many things I find with diabetes, if you could if I had to try and write down all the different decisions and all the different ways I think about it in the day, it would just take me <laughs> forever because there's so many little decisions that you make based on diabetes that you probably were not even conscious of 
once you've been living with it for a long time. But everything I find often comes back to that. I find it fascinating that we're all out there in the wild somewhere, just getting on with these lives and we might pass each other in the street and we're all dealing with these mental, mental things that we have to do. Where can people find you if they'd like to say hi? Do you know, I knew you were going to ask me that and I can't find the handle now. <laughs> I'm, just so not well, I'm so not well versed in technology. Um, it's just Emma Bowd. It's just my name. That's it. That's my Instagram handle that anyone can find me on if they want to. So that's E-M-M-A-B-O-W-D-I-T-C-H. Yeah, that's it. All these processes that you're going through, I certainly recognise a lot of them in myself. So thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been lovely to chat. It's been lovely to chat to you too. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's been great. I love listening to it. It's been strange to be on it. Thank you. (laughs) No, this has been brilliant. I really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Type One on One. Please remember that nothing you hear on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. I'm definitely not a healthcare professional. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe and do leave a little review on iTunes if you have time. It really helps to spread the word about type 1 diabetes. You can find me at Miss Jen Greaves across all the platforms and the podcast show notes live at MissJenGreaves.com. Thanks again to Dexcom UK and Ireland and Ipsamed My Life Diabetes Care for sponsoring this episode. And thank you so much for listening.